This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Part 2 Application of God's Law to Political Ends Chapter 22 The Political Implications of the Comprehensive Gospel Quote, If we must glorify God even in our eating and drinking, then surely we must also glorify Him in the way that we vote and thereby encourage statesmen to rule our society. End quote. It used to be the case that when a Bible-believing author wanted to write on some aspect of social morality or political policy, he had to give an introductory apologetic in defense for entering into such an area of discussion. Given the background of liberal or modernistic involvement in politics, given the threat of the social gospel, and given the evangelical withdrawal from the world encouraged by church-centered pietism and law-denying dispensationalism, anyone who wrote on subjects of political or social ethics would easily be suspected of compromise or departure from the faith. So reticence characterized evangelical and reformed publications in these areas. Times have obviously changed if we pay attention to the avalanche of books which have begun to be published over the last few years on the Christian, evangelical or reformed, approach to politics and social ethics. The pendulum has swung back so far in the other direction, in fact, that some measure of suspicion is likely to be felt toward any Bible-believing author who renounces or completely ignores such a vital concern. Trusted writers in the conservative tradition of theology have taken to penning their opinions about political morality. Men with visible political connections have written about their conversions and their Christian involvement in society's leadership. Pressing problems in the governing of the state, from tolerance toward homosexuality to legalized abortion, have forced an end to the policy of Christian silence on social issues of the day. Increased interest in the notion that Christianity pertains to the whole man, not simply his inward spiritual destiny, that its principles touch on all areas of life, not merely an hour of worship on the Lord's Day, and that the coming of Christ's kingdom has implications for the renewal of the entire creation, and not only the saving of souls from hell's fire, has naturally worked itself out in an increased interest in the Christian view of science, art, economics, politics, and everything else. So due to many factors, Christians have more and more in the last generation become politically aware and active. None of this should legitimately suggest, of course, that Christianity is primarily or most importantly a political position. It ought not to minimize the centrality and indispensable truth of the good news that Christ came to save his people from the curse of sin and the penalty of final judgment for their rebellion, the cross and resurrection, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and the necessity of justification by faith have not been forgotten or subordinated. However, the full implications of these truths are being appreciated again, even as they have been appreciated in previous days of the Church's existence. King Jesus In 1719, Isaac Watts wrote a now-famous hymn which expresses some of these implications, a hymn which Bible-believing Christians have sung, especially at Christmas season, and thus being joined even by many unbelievers for over two and a half centuries. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ.
While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The church has sung of the political implications of the gospel for years now. It has sung that the earth must receive her king, a reigning savior who rules the world, making the nations prove his righteousness. And this king is interested in more than the inward souls of men and their heavenly existence in the future. As a savior from sin, Christ is interested in every aspect of life infected by sin at man's fall. Quote, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, end quote. Just because a man's social existence and his political efforts have been cursed by sin, Christ the King proves his righteousness in the realm of human politics, even as he reigns over every other department of man's thoughts, life, and behavior. The early church was well aware of the political implications of being a Christian. To be a Christian, a disciple or follower of Christ, Acts 11.26, meant to confess Jesus Christ as Savior, Messiah, and Lord, Christians declared that Jesus was their Savior, or Soter, Greek. As we see in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, quote, We have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be Savior of the world, end quote. Despite the fact that Roman coins of the day often depicted the Emperor's face with the inscription of Soter, or only Savior in some cases, the earliest Christians declared the name of Jesus was the one and only name given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. It was also essential for a Christian to quote, believe that Jesus is the Christ, end quote, or Messiah, as it says in 1 John chapter 5 verse 1. Because Jesus admitted openly that he was the Christ, the Sanhedrin brought him before Pilate for trial, where Pilate too inquired and found out that Jesus considered himself a king. Luke chapter 22, verse 67 through chapter 23, verse 3, in which case he was deemed to be speaking out against Caesar himself. John chapter 19, verse 12. Finally, the New Testament shows us that it is characteristic of all Christians that they confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, meaning that their allegiance in all things belongs to him as Lord of lords and King of kings. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, and chapter 19, verse 16. Even as he battles against the political power of the beast and the kings of the earth. So then, like it or not, the earliest Christians comprehended that being a Christian had political ramifications. Paul and the Christians at Thessalonica were charged with political crimes because of their confession of Christ. It was alleged, quote, These all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus, end quote. Acts chapter 17, verse 7. We know that one day King Jesus will require all kings of the earth to give an account of their rule to him as their sovereign ruler and judge. All thrones were created for him, who is to have preeminence in all things. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Kings who have been so unwise as not to serve the Lord with fear and kiss the Son will experience his wrath, perishing in the way. Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Therefore, we can see how important and legitimate it is for Christians, Bible-believing Christians, who want to submit to Scripture from beginning to end, to maintain God-glorifying attitudes and beliefs about politics and social ethics. 
If we must glorify God even in our eating and drinking, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, then surely we must also glorify Him in the way that we vote and thereby encourage statesmen to rule our society. Indeed, we must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, so that His will is done on earth, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Uncertain Trumpets But what is His will for political ethics? This is the critical question, yet it is the question that modern Christian writers on politics and social morality find so difficult, if not impossible, to answer clearly and specifically. With the renewed interest we are seeing in our day for Christians to rush into the political arena with a complete world and life view, which touches on everything of human interest, with the flood of books and articles which are now being published on the Christian approach to politics, what would happen if the world were all of a sudden to stop short and simply say, quote, All right, we see how humanism has failed so desperately. What do you Christians say we should do in matters of political ethics? End quote. Once given the opportunity to speak out with the Christian perspective, would evangelical and reformed writers have anything to say beyond generalizations and ambiguous platitudes? There is a reason to doubt that they would. The explanation of that likely failure is not hard to find. The reason why Christians who want to write or take a stand on issues of political ethics have usually failed to produce distinctive and helpful answers which are clear and specific is to be found in their reluctance to endorse and publicize the law of God, precisely where the Lord has revealed definite answers to the socio-political problems of men and their civilizations. What kind of good news or gospel does the kingdom of Jesus Christ bring according to many Christian groups? The social gospel. A social gospel is dominated by modernists and liberals, as most any Bible-believing Christian knows today. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the higher critical movement and scholarship challenged much of the biblical teaching and undermined the most basic theology of the Christian church. Thus the work and message of Christ were reduced so that he performed no priestly work by his death and resurrection and secured no eternal salvation for men. The modernistic approach to man became evolutionary and naturalistic, further denying the Christian message about man's unique dignity as God's image and special creation by his hand. As a result, modernism turned away from the verities of biblical Christianity and concentrated almost exclusively on moralistic themes and interests, especially matters touching on the brotherhood of all men, as seen in social relations. So liberal theologians felt no hesitation to propagate humanistic solutions to political questions, all in the name of Christianity. We must remember, however, that the fault with the social gospel was not that it was social, but that it was modernistic and Bible-denying. The Fundamentalist Response In reaction to liberalism, fundamentalism in the 20th century preached an individualistic gospel by extreme contrast. The emphasis fell upon saving men's souls from eternal damnation and changing men's hearts for church-oriented living, waiting for the imminent return of Christ to this hopelessly degenerating world. Ironically, for all the effort to distance itself from liberalism's errors, the commendable insistence on certain key fundamental doctrines of the Bible in fundamentalism tended to create a short-sightedness to the full implications of Christianity. Once again, the work and message of Christ were reduced, for the full salvation which Christ accomplished was narrowed to the spiritual aspects of man, and the present kingdom and rule of Christ were postponed to a later date, when socio-political matters would again reappear on the agenda. Redemption was not seen as applying as far as sin's curses found, and godliness was narrowly defined by abstinence from worldly abuses, like drinking, smoking, movies, dancing, etc., 
conservatism of fundamentalism was sorely needed in theology, of course, but the social effects were less than beneficial. Jesus said that if the salt has lost its savor, it is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13. To the extent that this happened to fundamentalism, it was because it did not proclaim the whole counsel of God, even for social, political, morality. Paul's ethic was not exclusively focused on the future life in heaven or the individualistic behavior of the present. He said, quote, Godliness is profitable for all things, having promise for the life which is now and of that which is to come. End quote. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Lutheranism and Romanism. Side by side with the social gospel of modernism and the individualistic gospel of fundamentalism, we can place the dichotomistic gospel of Romanism and Lutheranism. The Lutheran Church, to be sure, stands firmly opposed to the theological errors of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther, we recall, inaugurated the Protestant Reformation of the Church by insisting on the doctrine of justification by faith, over against the Romanist notions of righteousness through works of the law. Yet, strangely enough, the Lutheran outlook on socio-political matters has developed into a parallel perspective to that of Rome. The Roman Catholic Church reduces the work of Christ, leaving the completion of salvation to priests and to human efforts, while the Lutheran Church tends to reduce the message of Christ, drawing a strong opposition between law and gospel, and laying nearly exclusive stress on the latter. The Roman Catholic outlook over the years has been that there is a distinction to be drawn between the realms of nature and grace. Some matters pertain to one, while different matters pertain to the other. Political questions are natural to man in his social existence, and thus the perspective of grace, special revelation, is not directly pertinent to them. In that case, man's self-sufficient and natural reason becomes the arbitrator in issues of political ethics. In parallel fashion, classic Lutheran doctrine teaches that there is a kingdom of the right hand and a kingdom of the left hand, one pertaining to salvation and the church while the other pertains to creation and society. As a result, when believers enter into political reasoning, they do so on a common platform with unbelievers. Neither Romanism nor Lutheranism have a direct and specific word from God on political matters, but only on matters concerned with grace and salvation. As a result, they both promote a neutral attitude toward politics which cannot offer distinct guidance from Scripture for society. The dichotomies which are central to these theological perspectives screen out a fully biblical orientation to political ethics. Neo-Orthodoxy Rocking to yet another extreme, neo-Orthodoxy and subsequent radical theologies have proclaimed the unsure gospel, which addressed special problems in society and politics, but with no clear and specific word from God. Karl Barth was confident that the commands of the Bible were not universal truths applicable to every age and culture, but merely time-bound witnesses to the will of God. Emil Brunner went further to say that the Bible could not, in the nature of the case, provide us with pre-established norms of conduct for our obligations, he thought, could only be determined by the situation in which we find ourselves, opening the door wide to the development of Joseph Fletcher's situational morality, where moral duty is relativistic. Neo-Orthodoxy promoted nothing more than cheap grace, which did not require men to be converted, to repent of specific sins, and to be sanctified according to an unchanging pattern of holiness. Neo-Orthodoxy could not offer anything but a nebulous gospel to men, for according to it, God did not communicate in infallible verbal propositions. So it was only to be expected that the neo-Orthodox approach to social problems was ambiguous, unclear, and unauthoritative. 
It has no sure word from God by which to judge and guide the social affairs of men. The Comprehensive Gospel Over against the social gospel of modernism, the individualistic gospel of fundamentalism, the dichotomistic gospel of Romanism and Lutheranism, and the unsure gospel of neo-orthodoxy and radicalism, we find the blessed and refreshing comprehensive gospel of Reformed theology, which is the heritage of biblical Christianity. The good news of Christ's kingdom is that Jesus Christ graciously and powerfully saves man in the fullness of his created and sinful existence. He is a prophet declaring God's will for ignorant men. He is a priest interceding to God on behalf of polluted sinners. And he is a king, ruler over all men and all areas of life. The coming of the kingdom, therefore, brings the progressive rule of Christ over the world, the flesh, and the devil. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. The Reformed churches have always stood for the proclamation of sola scriptura and tota scriptura. Scripture alone must be the standard of our theology and ethic, and we must preach all scripture in its total relevance to the life of men. Only scripture, but totally scripture. Consequently, we observe that the preaching of the New Testament is not apolitical. Jesus rebuked Herod as a vixen, and John the Baptist called his behavior unlawful. Paul warns against a political ruler, who is the man of lawlessness, and John calls him the beast. Over against these evil rulers, Christians are to stand for the law of God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, and chapter 14, verse 12. Because Paul taught that the civil magistrate was obligated to be a minister of God who avenges his wrath against evildoers who violate God's law. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. Since the New Testament is not apolitical, neither is the comprehensive preaching of the Reformed churches. However, in recent years there has been a steady disinclination to maintain the political use of the law of God when it comes to declaring God's will for socio-political morality. Accordingly, we take up the question of whether the civil magistrate today should obey and enforce the Old Testament law of God. Chapter 23. Law and Politics in Old Testament Israel. Quote, when those who rule for God depart from his laws, then they must be judged by God. The very foundation of civil order was undermined when judges did not discern between good and evil. End quote. Many Christians want to take a distinctive stand with respect to issues of socio-political morality. However, this has become very difficult once the political use of God's law has been forgotten or rejected. Unfortunately, even writers in the general Reformed tradition of theology have repudiated that use of God's law lately. In response, we ask whether the Bible teaches that civil magistrates ought to obey and enforce the relevant portions of the Old Testament law. In one sense, previous studies have already offered us an apparent answer to this question. We have seen that the whole Bible is our standard of morality today, for God does not have a double standard of justice. Instead, the law reflects the Lord's unchanging holiness, being perfectly obeyed by Christ, our example, and enforced within the believer by the Holy Spirit, our power. We have seen that the Old and New Covenants have a uniform view of the law of God, and that Christ himself declared that every stroke of the Old Testament continued to have validity after his coming to earth to save sinners. Repeatedly, the New Testament authors assume the standard of the law in their ethical themes and make application of the law in their moral judgments. Every scripture, every point, every word, and indeed every letter of the Old Testament law is upheld in the New Testament. Therefore, it would seem obvious that the socio-political aspects of the Old Testament law would retain their validity today. 
that they are authoritative for civil magistrates of all ages and cultures. Just as parents, farmers, merchants, and others have moral duties laid upon them in the Old Testament law, so also civil rulers have duties enjoined for their official business in the law of the Lord. Yet not everyone is willing to endorse the current applicability of the Old Testament law in a particular domain of civil politics. The whole law may be endorsed in the Old Testament, it is thought, but there has come about in the New Testament a different attitude toward the civil magistrate. The view taken seems to be that, because the magistrate in Old Testament Israel was in various ways unique, being chosen by God in a special way, being a foreshadowing of the person of Christ, etc., the law by which this magistrate was to govern society must also have been unique, meant only for Israel to follow. In short, there was an extraordinary doctrine of the office of civil magistrate in the Old Testament revelation for Israel, and thus, what was the moral duty for the Old Testament Jewish rulers who could not be taken as the standard for political ethics today? The fallacy embodied in this line of thought is the assumption that if two entities are in some ways different, then they are in all ways different. What has been overlooked is the distinct possibility of similarity, not total identity and not complete difference, but elements which are the same between two things and elements which are distinct. A tank and a sports car are similar with respect to their running on wheels, but they are different in their speed, power, and appearance. Likewise, it may be very well that the Old Testament Jewish magistrates were different from Gentile magistrates in some respects, and yet very much like the others in further respects. The Civil Magistrate the Bible appears to teach that one way in which all civil magistrates are alike, whether they are Jewish or Gentile, Old Testament or New Testament, is in the standards of justice which are laid upon them by the Creator. God does not have a double standard of justice. Thus, the laws which he stipulated for Old Testament Jewish magistrates to follow are just as applicable to pre-consummation issues of crime and punishment today as they were in Old Testament Israel. Now, as then... Society needs to know how to cope with attacks upon human dignity, freedom, safety, and honor. Magistrates in all ages need guidance for dealing with murder, kidnapping, rape, perjury, and the like. And in this respect, the magistrate in Old Testament Israel would be just like any other magistrate, subject to the unchanging justice and continuing validity of God's revealed law for socio-political affairs. We can see this if we study the biblical teaching about civil magistrates in Old Testament Israel, Gentile nations surrounding Israel, and then in the New Testament. Not only do we see then the continuing validity of the Old Testament law in general, but we see the basically uniform outlook on civil rule which is taught in God's word. Rulers have the same obligations and have the same standards of right and wrong in all cultures. Having surveyed this situation in scripture, we can turn to the questions of church, state, separation, and penology. Our survey begins by outlining basic theses in the biblical view of the civil magistrate in Old Testament Israel. 1. God's appointed rulers are not to be resisted. God was recognized in the Old Testament as the one who ordained and removed rulers in Israel. There was no authority in Israelite society except by God, and those who ruled were ordained to such leadership by God. On the one hand, the people selected and acknowledged their rulers, as in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20, or 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. And on the other hand, there was a corresponding defined decree which sovereignly established the ruler, as in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 31, or 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. 
God's sovereign power of appointment is made quite clear in Hosea chapter 13, verse 11. Quote, I have given you a king in my anger and have taken him away in my wrath. End quote. In Old Testament Israel, the powers that be were ordained of God. For that reason, it was strictly forbidden that people resist the authority of their political leaders. Honor had to be given to whom it was due. So the law of God prohibited any reviling of the ruler. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. And Paul himself appealed to the standard in his own case. Acts chapter 23, verse 5. It was because Saul was the Lord's anointed that David dared not lift his hand against him. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 7 and verse 11, and chapter 26, verse 23. The king's exalted position was such that one should obey his command, not oppose his rebuke, not defy his power, and not renounce allegiance. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 2 through 5. Old Testament citizens were accordingly taught that they were to be subject to the higher authorities, not resisting the powers ordained by God. 2. Bearing religious titles, rulers were avengers of divine wrath. In the Old Testament political arrangement, the sons of the king were often political counselors at his side. Cross-reference, 1 Chronicles chapter 27, verses 32 and 33. In 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 17, we read of the political office designated as heads with respect to the power of the king. And the parallel passage in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 18, informs us that this office was filled by David's sons. What is of interest to us here is that in the latter verse, these political officers are called priests. The same Hebrew word for the cultic office of priest was used for these political rulers, even as it was applied in similar fashion to David's officer, Ira the Jairite, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 26, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 38. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, we find a list of Solomon's officers, where Zabud is called a priest, and the text immediately explains this office as, quote, the king's friend, end quote, his continual advisor. The head of the political priest, the priest, or prime administrator of the kingdom, is named as Azariah in the same passage. What we learn then is that the rulers of state in the Old Testament were viewed as so intimately concerned with the affairs of God's word and so strictly subject to his command that they could be given customary religious titles. The magistrates in Israel were genuine ministers of God authorized to rule according to his just standards as his representatives in society. Old Testament civil rulers were ordained by God, were not to be resisted, and bore religious titles as the representatives of God in society. Their main function was that of avenging God's wrath against violators of his law for social justice. Over and over again, the Old Testament associated the sword of judgment with God, who brought historical punishment upon the rebellion of men. Even Israel was threatened with the judgment of the sword if she broke the law of the Lord. For example, Leviticus chapter 26 verse 25 verse 33 and 36 and 37. A threat carried out in its climax when Jerusalem fell by the edge of the sword according to the word of Christ. Luke chapter 21, verse 24. The sword of vengeance belongs to God, and yet the sword is repeatedly associated with God's will for civil rule as well. Human government is symbolized by the sword, whether it is wielded by Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 18, verse 4, or by Saul, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. The sword's proper function is that of executing criminal violators of God's law. For example, 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 51, chapter 2 verse 8, etc. 
Whenever the sword is used autonomously, whenever men use political power and punishment as a law unto themselves, it is used in a sinful manner. For example, 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 19. The wielding of the sword is accordingly vain if it is not used in conformity to God's law. The magistrate in Israel had no right to slay men independent of God's guidance and word. We can observe further that wrath and vengeance are constantly attributed to God in his purity and justice. They are retribution expressed against those who dare to profane the covenant of the Lord, Psalm 54, verses 20 and 21, to violate his laws, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 17, or to sin, for example, Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. When the civil magistrate is said to express wrath and vengeance in the Old Testament, then it is only natural to expect that the ruler is expressing the wrath of God in vengeance upon evildoers. For example, Joshua chapter 7 verse 25 and chapter 22 verse 20, 2 Kings chapter 12 verse 5. The Old Testament declared that vengeance belonged to God that he would repay. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35 and 41. It nevertheless taught that the civil magistrate was under orders to carry out vengeance against transgressions of God's law for social behavior. For example, Exodus chapter 21 verses 20 and 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 19. Vengeance, you see, must be based upon the holiness of God. Psalm 98 verse 8. It is occasioned, therefore, by sinning against his law. For example, Ezekiel chapter 7 verse 27, chapter 9 verse 1, chapter 20 verse 4. Hosea chapter 1 verse 4, chapter 2 verse 13, and Zechariah chapter 5 verse 3. As an agent of God's wrath, the civil magistrate was seen in the Old Testament as God's vicegerent or deputy in the state. The God of the Bible is a God of law and justice. Isaiah chapter 33 verse 22, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4. Not one who acts in capricious or arbitrary ways. He always judges with righteousness, Psalm 96, 13, and expects others to do likewise, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. To do righteousness and justice, one must keep the way of Jehovah and follow his ordinances, Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 21. Moses confidently declared to Israel, quote, What great nation is there that his statutes and ordinances so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day, end quote. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 8. Now above everything else, God required that the civil rulers of Israel would demonstrate justice or righteousness in all of their decisions. Quote, you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. End quote. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 15. Counter reference Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 18. Amos the prophet cried out so that God's people would establish justice in the gate and thereby let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Clearly, if the God of justice requires earthly rulers to govern with justice, then those rulers are obligated to observe the law of God in all of their judgments, even as God does not justify the wicked. Exodus chapter 23 verse 7. They must not justify the wicked. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 1. They must judge as he judges. Of God it was said in the Old Testament, quote, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, end quote. Psalm 89, verse 14. The earthly king's throne was likewise to be established on justice and righteousness. Psalm 72, verses 1 and 2. 
which it would be if the king did not turn aside from God's commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20. So the Lord, we see, set kings upon their thrones to be king for Jehovah thy God, to do justice and righteousness. 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 8. In their decision, the judgment is God's. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And for that reason, civil judges could be designated God's. Psalm 82, verses 1 and 6. When they punished evildoers according to the penal sanctions of the law of God, judges made manifest that they were imaging God. Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. As God's deputies in society, representatives of his justice and vengeance, civil magistrates were bound to wield the sword according to God's own direction and law. 3. Magistrates must deter evil by ruling according to God's law. In the Old Testament, those who showed themselves worthy were safe, but the wicked would die. For example, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 52. So the wrath of the king is as messengers of death. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 14. The civil magistrate was accordingly called to be a terror to evildoers. But then if civil rulers in Israel were ordained by God as his deputies, who were to be a terror to evildoers, but no threat to the righteous, is it not obvious that they had to rule according to God's law? If they rested on their own wisdom and moral discernment, they would easily have judged with partiality, leniency, and harshness rather than the purity of God's justice. For even civil rulers among God's chosen people were sinners who needed the guidance and correction of God's revelation, especially in official decisions they made which affected the nation in its uprightness. Thus, the Old Testament taught that justice is perverted whenever the law of God was slackened. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 4. Since judges were required to execute justice and righteousness, Jeremiah chapter 22 verse 3, God said, quote, And in a controversy they shall stand to judge, according to mine ordinances shall they judge it, and they shall keep my laws and my statutes. End quote. Ezekiel chapter 40 verse 24. Kings were forbidden to frame mischief by a law. Psalm 94 verse 20 receiving the charge to keep his statutes and his commandments and his ordinances and his testimonies according to that which is written in the law of Moses. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3. Over and over again, the rulers of Israel pleased the Lord by dedicating themselves to keep his commandments. For example, Josiah and Ezra's reform. The reason why kings were to stay sober was just so they would not forget the law and pervert judgment. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 5. Daily they were to read God's law, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 19, and morning by morning they were to punish the workers of iniquity, Psalm 101, verse 8. It follows, of course, that those rulers who spurned the law of God in their official capacity as civil magistrates were subject to the judgmental wrath of God. Isaiah cried out, quote, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions. End quote. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1. Psalm 82 teaches that God Himself stands in the law court of the gods, judges, so as to rebuke unjust judgments passed there. When those who rule for God depart from His laws, then they must be judged by God. The very foundation of the civil order was undermined when judges did not discern between good and evil. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. The Old Testament abounds with illustrations of God's judgment upon kings, rulers, and judges in Israel who departed from the just standards of his law in their governing of society. 
Note especially King Ahab, who for his own selfish ends engaged in false witness, theft, and even murder. 1 Kings chapter 21 verses 1 through 22. These matters were recorded by the historian for posterity and as an example, instead of Ahab's feats in battle, which are known from secular accounts of the period. It was of crucial importance in Israel that rulers abide by the law of the Lord. Those who, like Jeroboam and Jehu, departed from God's commandments and made the people sin, had evil brought against their own houses by God and were swept away. 1 Kings chapter 14 verses 8 through 10 and chapter 16 verses 2 and 3. When princes became unrighteous and rebellious, the whole city was characterized as unrighteous. Isaiah chapter 1 verses 21 through 28. And God always eventually judged the injustice. When the Jews returned from years of exile and captivity, they confessed that their kings had not kept the law of God. Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 34 through 37. And in restored Jerusalem, the magistrates determined to execute true and peaceful judgments in the law courts. Zechariah chapter 8 verse 16. Law and politics in Old Testament Israel revolved around God's law for the civil magistrate. But what about the Gentiles? Did their governments have different moral standards from Israel's? To this question we must now give attention. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.